This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Or you can find us directly on our social media pages, Healing Paths Recovery, or directly on our website, www.healingpathsrecovery.com. And while you're there, I would love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today on the podcast, I have a guest, which I've talked about, that I'm going to be doing a monthly recording with Rachel Allen, one of my colleagues at Healing Paths. And we are going to be recording the first Monday of every month. So that's when you can look for those episodes to come out. So Rachel is here with me. Hi. And today we're going to talk about, as an introduction, I mean, I mentioned that Rachel has been on the podcast before. Uh, We're both CSATs, kind of work with the same populations. We both work with sex addicts. We both work with partners. But we're going to talk about, we just got back. So last week, starting on Thursday through Saturday, Saturday, we were at the ITAP symposium. So I don't know that I've mentioned ITAP before. ITAP stands for the International Institute for Trauma and Addiction Professionals. They are the one overseeing all of the CSAT training. That's mostly what they host, right? Is kind of the CSAT training. There's a different organization that's doing the research around sex addiction. And so anyway, we were there. Rachel was a presenter this year in one of the breakout sessions. And so I thought it would be good just to kind of talk about her presentation, what she talked about, have a discussion just about that topic that she discussed in her presentation. So her presentation was around deconstruction. Did you have a subtitle? Yeah, I mean, so it was spiritual deconstruction and ethical approach. So my goal in the presentation was to train therapists on how to ethically handle or approach spiritual deconstruction, because we're seeing a lot of it right now in our offices. And there's not a lot out there for therapists on training. In fact, I couldn't find anything for therapists there for spiritual deconstruction. There was some stuff for spiritual abuse but not necessarily the deconstruction process. And so my goal was to inform therapists how to ethically address this in a way that feels safe to clients, safe to people who are spiritually deconstructing. Cool. And a little just backstory, as Rachel was mentioning, we do see this in our office fairly often. And that's not something that we advertise on our website. You know, I've, I've asked clients when I get them and they're going through a deconstruction process, why did you select our office? Because that's not something that we're advertising. I don't know if this is true in other states. One of the things we get told is the fact that we don't advertise on our website is one of the things that they like or that is attractive about working with us. I think Two, they resonate with the betrayal trauma. Many times they're feeling betrayed by their religion. And so I think that resonates with them. We have some videos on our website. And so I think they are listening to those and find something relevant. Like some of them are not sex addicts. They're not betrayed partners um, when they're coming in. Sometimes they are. And so they want to work on both of those things. So. You weren't sure though how that would go with ITAP when you were thinking about putting that in as a proposal 
to be selected for one of the breakout sessions. You weren't sure if the ITAP community would be open to that. You weren't sure if ITAP leadership would be open to that. You know, so you kind of sent an email just saying, hey, before I do the work of writing up a whole proposal, what's the likelihood of this being selected just based on the topic? So yeah, and I think with all things spiritual, this is one of the cruxes of uh, being a therapist, right? We're taught that we're like all spiritual things need to be client led, that we're not supposed to really like touch those unless like they bring it up, right? Like it's mm -hmm. supposed to be about the client for the client. And ITAP does a really good job of holding that line, I think in a lot of ways, but this is a really sticky subject because there's a lot of misinformation about spiritual deconstruction out there. There are a lot of people who are loud I guess about mm -hmm. how spiritual deconstruction can be damaging or harmful. And so I think with all heavy topics, it's good to kind of have an idea of like, is this even needed or is this something that you would be willing to showcase or pick up? And the response I got was at like, yes, we're excited about this. Thank you for putting this on the table. And that was kind of my response. Even after doing the presentation, mm -hmm. I had people talking to me about it and like, we need resources, you know, what are your resources? And I had to, you know, kind of say like right now, I think I'm the resource. I'm not, I don't want to be, I want there to be more out there. And I'm, we just don't have books that talk about therapists walking people through spiritual deconstruction. We have a lot of people telling their spiritual deconstruction stories. And some of those are really positive and some of those are really negative. And like, I was excited that it got picked up and mm -hmm. I was excited that ITAP was willing to platform this and say like, yeah, this is a, this is a conversation we need to have. Yeah. And some of the feedback you got from participants who came to that breakout session was where can I hear more yeah. of you talking about this? Like, I want to know more. I think this is an important topic and you know, you're kind of like, well, this is the beginning. I can record more. I can talk more. And this was the beginning. I mean, we talk about it in our staff meetings. We talk yeah. about it as a team, but not in a way that, you know, outside of our office, they can access the information. Right. And I think that that was a realization for me. Like I have been talking about this for years mm -hmm. of putting together a format or a plan or a direction to go with clients. I've been talking to you about this for years. I've been talking to other clinicians about this for years, but I've never formalized it. And this was the first time I had formalized it and created a presentation. And I think I'm still kind of reeling from that space of, right. I'm the one that stepped into this space and said, like, there's a gap here mm -hmm. and, and there does need to be more information. We do need to be having more conversations about this. And again, like spiritual deconstruction is one of those things where like people don't know how to define it. They don't know what to do with it. It brushes up against a therapist's own belief systems a lot of times. And so like that needs to be recognized. And this is new, mm -hmm. right? This is, it's not new in history and it's not new in people dealing with it. It's new in therapists dealing with it in a way that is taking it head on. I think that a lot of therapists have had it in their office, have had it shown up, show up in their office. And like I said, there's a lot around spiritual abuse out there that has shown up in the literature, but 
not a whole lot about the actual deconstruction process that comes from that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, when we talk about it being new, I think it's also new for clients to bring it up in a therapy session. Yeah. Like I've said before, I've been in the field a long time and I would say prior to maybe I would put it at 2015, two things that I just never had come up in the therapy room was spirituality and politics. I mean, it might come up in terms of them acknowledging whether they were spiritual or what that meant to them, or if that was important or not important, but it wasn't necessarily part of the therapy process. And I've just seen a huge shift in that. I would say since 2015, where clients are talking about spirituality, I don't think it's a coincidence as they're talking about spirituality, that they're talking about politics and they're trying to make sense of it. Right. So because you said there, you know, it's hard to define, there's not a lot of definitions out there. Let's start with how did you define it? Yeah. So I love language. I think that language is really important. And so how we define things for clients, I think can be very helpful. And for me, spiritual deconstruction based on the literature that I read is a critical dismantling or critical questioning of a faith of origin or a faith of like a faith of definition. So if you're part of a faith and you start to critically question that faith or religion, and that leads to more questions and that leads to more questions. And we start kind of pulling apart. What do I actually believe? What are they telling me? Does this line up with who I am? That critical dismantling that it is a spiritual practice, but I also, I think it's a very intellectual one. And I think it requires a lot of questioning and a lot of asking a lot of questioning and a, a lot of like wrestling with those questions. And that process can be really short. Like I've, I've known people who have done it in like six months where they are fully in, they are fully invested in the faith. Something happens, which I call that something, that event, mm -hmm. a faith crisis, right? That is the, the crisis is what kind of launches us into spiritual deconstruction. But the, the spiritual deconstruction itself is not actually the crisis, right? It's a lot more, I think that done well, the spiritual deconstruction process happens within the window of tolerance. Mm -hmm. It happens with us grounded. It happens with support. I don't know that the crisis does that. Right. And so. And I often do, the crisis puts us outside of the window of tolerance. Right. And so I do think that a spiritual deconstruction process has more of a process to it, right? Mm -hmm. The faith crisis is usually something that happens to us. And the spiritual deconstruction that comes out of that is how we choose to process that faith mm -hmm. crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and it can happen over a long period of time. I think like you and I have talked, my personal spiritual deconstruction lasted almost a decade mm -hmm. from when I started questioning to when I actually like it. There were a lot of little things that I was questioning and I was making sense of it in my world. And then there was this space of, okay, now I have a lot of questions that I need to answer. Mm -hmm. And so it did ramp up towards the end of that deconstruction process, but it was a long time coming. Um, and it was, it was a slow burn in a lot of ways. Yeah. Which I also relate to. And I just want to say like Rachel and I came from different faiths of origin. Yes, we did. And yet the process had a lot of common yeah. ground and, and I also relate to, I think in some ways I have deconstructed since my childhood because my family did not fit the families that were talked about at church. 
And based on that model, there were these teachings and these teachings and these teachings, right? And so I'm sitting there keeping the family secret like a good child of a dysfunctional family. And, but also in my mind thinking, okay, well, if this isn't my family, then this isn't the path for me. What is the path for me? You know, well, I, I think that started young. And so I didn't always know what the alternative was, what, what's plan B, what's plan D, right, for my family. But also, you know, I've, I've mentioned before, I think in many ways too, religion also served as my most functional parent. So there was a feeling of safety and there was a feeling of, you know, at least somebody knows the answers to the questions. Yeah. At least somebody knows a process because my parents didn't. And so, you know, I, I think it was immature deconstruction, right? Until it wasn't. Right. I mean, I think that there's this weird thing that is happening in like pop culture, especially on like social media, right? When we get just sound bites of things where we're really confusing doubt in a faith mm -hmm. and spiritual deconstruction and doubt is part of faith. You can't have faith without some doubt, right? Because mm -hmm. if you have certainty in something, it's not faith anymore, right. Right. right? It's a fact, even in your own life. And so there has to be some kind of like wrestling with this paradox of doubt is faith and faith is doubt. And so we experience a lot of like questioning and things. And I, you know, I know enough of your story to know that I think you were spiritually deconstructing. Like yours wasn't just doubt. Yours was this doesn't fit and mm -hmm. this doesn't fit inside me. And I don't know what to do with that, but I'm just going to keep going until it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And because of course the issue was with me, right? Not with the religion. Right. And, and I do think there is a long, I think one of the things that I hope that this conversation can do is just kind of take away some of the stigma of questioning or deconstructing because it is such a big issue for people who are deconstructing that like no one will understand them or, you know, they're shamed in some capacity. And the reality is that when we start questioning our religion of origin or our faith of origin, that can be threatening to other people who are not willing to do that process. Mm -hmm. And, and there is a truth to that. It also threatens our community, right? We're, uh, I say all the time, we're pack animals. We're created to be in community. And if our community is, is this religion, is this, you know, structure and questioning it has been made so taboo, then the likelihood that we're going to get launched out of that community is pretty high. And we see that in addiction too. The reality mm -hmm. is right. Like addicts often realize in recovery, I can't have the same friends or I have to set boundaries with family. And you've talked about that on your podcast. You know, right. you've talked about what those boundaries look like. Spiritual deconstruction isn't different in that way. And that's really scary for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And, and the questions I remember reading Rachel Held Evans. Uh, I want to say it was taking back Sunday and her just always saying like what I believed about my faith and what was being taught in the church were not lining up. And I didn't know what to do with that. And oftentimes people in that space, Rachel Held Evans was one of them, like you just ask too many questions, but 
the human brain is meant to ask questions. We are naturally curious creatures, right? Questions expand us, questions grow us. And I, I think that that is a hard part of this is we're breaking rules in order to find ourselves, and often find like we, we need to reconstruct into something, right? Right. Which is the other label that I talk, you can't just burn everything down or dismantle everything and leave it in ruin. Like that's depressing for everybody. We don't want to do that. We want to create, reconstruct something, a framework of something. And sometimes that is going back to the faith of origin in a different way or recognizing self in that. And sometimes it's something completely different Mm -hmm. and both of those are okay. I know like going back to when you were talking about the questions, I know for me, there was a time in my life when I was younger, which makes sense to me that somebody having answers and having answers felt comforting to me. Mm -hmm. And there came a time where I, I felt like I crossed this threshold and having all the answers and being around people who thought they had all the answers like it did not feel good to me anymore. And, you know, I think I arrived at a place where I get more out of questions than I do out of answers, because I think oftentimes having those answers is kind of a thought stopping process. And we don't continue with curiosity. We don't continue with awe. We don't continue with those questions that, like you said, grow us. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. I read a book a couple of years ago called Cultish. Mm-hmm. I read it too. And I, one, I thought it was interesting because she's a linguist. And so she's talking about the language of cults and it's fascinating and just a fun read. Like if you really like that kind of thing, it's a fun read, but, and it's more like sometimes when, you know, I mean, I'm a kid of the seventies. So when I think of cults, it's the cults of the seventies and onward. And I thought it was so fascinating because she kind of did a modern take on cults. Yeah. Like cults are not always religious organizations even. Right. And I loved the fact that she said like, look, like the, the root definition of cult is like a devotion to something. Mm-hmm. And so that can be anything that can be a spin class. Like if you're regularly, we talk about it, like religiously going to spin class, that can be a cult a small cult, a healthy cult, right? Mm-hmm. And she talks about the difference between healthy cults and unhealthy cults. And, but the, what the word has actually become in our culture doesn't actually fit the definition. Right. And I loved that. And I think it was very, in many ways, like, I think it was very like non-shaming in the way of like, look, like we like to be in community. We like to be devoted to a community. We're all a little bit cultish. Like we're, mm-hmm. we're all a part of something that's a little bit cultish. Uh, from your D and D groups on Saturdays to, you know, big religions, the level of devotion and the, the rites of passage and the rules that kind of apply to that make it a cult, but it doesn't have to be bad. Mm-hmm. And I, I loved the way that she worded that. But one of the things that she talks about are these thought stopping cliches, the things that we're told to make us stop questioning. And oftentimes in my experience, those are shaming right? Whether they're meant to be or not. One of the ones that like always came up for me is, well, God's plan is unknowable. Mm -hmm. Right. So if, if God has an ineffable plan, then we, we can't know it. So you just have to trust that. Well, I don't trust easy. (laughs) 
and so trusting someone that I cannot see that I cannot right like there's that level of okay but that works until it doesn't right and but I, there's also some shame in you wanting to know more right and I think uh you and I talk about this a lot I I read a lot of fiction I read a lot of fantasy I find a lot of human stories in that and I think when I started really kind of looking at why do these stories speak to me, there was a spiritual aspect of that. And one of those was they got to ask questions. Mm -hmm. They got to go on a journey. They got to dig deeper into who they were. They got to break, right? So many characters break in these stories and do find a way to put themselves back together in a way that's different, in a way that's new, but in a way that is more whole in some capacity. And I, I think that spiritual deconstruction does that for people. And it is scary, right? The breaking is scary. The unraveling is scary. And I like to package it nicely. Like we talk about, like I use a lot of language of unraveling or, I mean, like spiritual deconstruction is dark for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and that was one of the other things that I talked about in my presentation is there are a lot of things that spiritual deconstruction is not. And when we put it on that process, that becomes shaming, right? Like right. It, it's not an escape from a religion. Most people who I know who are spiritually deconstructing, including myself, like I didn't want to question to the point that I lost everything. Mm -hmm. And so there are some internal dams and internal buffers that we will try to hold up to stay within that line, to stay within that space. And that's okay. I mean, the truth is it's scary to lose everything you've ever known and step into something completely different. Mm -hmm. Especially when I believe human beings love certainty so much. Yes. We really do like certainty. <laughs> and really like except certainty. our entire life is like, I really do believe the entire human existence is trying to teach us that we can be certain of nothing ever. And we really want to cling to it. Right. But, you know, I've heard people, especially um, people who don't understand spiritual deconstruction, they'll talk about it as like a rebellion or mm -hmm. a free pass. I hate that one, right? Yeah, like the free yeah. pass to just do what you want without moral constrictions. Like I've never experienced that as a reason that right. people spiritually deconstruct. I think, and I will say, I mean, we work with a lot of sex addicts. They are not yes. deconstructing so that they can go out and do anything sexually that they did before and just not feel guilty. Right. And, and I think that that is a huge misnomer with therapists and with the general populace, right? Mm -hmm. That you're just doing this because you want a free pass. I have never experienced that with my clients. I've never experienced that with people in my real life. This is a difficult thing. And uh, one of my goals as a therapist is that we can create some parameters of safety as we're deconstructing so that relapse doesn't get out of control or sexual exploration in that space is safe mm -hmm. because we shouldn't be oh like our reconstruction process may have some like redefining sexual space but i don't know that deconstruction process can do that right. right because we're dismantling and sometimes we're reconstructing and deconstructing at the same time and that can be really really difficult to navigate within the mm -hmm. body and so i try to create like okay let's create a, a safe a kitty side of the pool that we're just testing the water and not necessarily, Hey, we're jumping into the deep end and we're going to do a lot of behaviors that I've never been able to do before. Right. And you talked about in your presentation, like as therapists, 
we don't have a choice over when the faith crisis hits and then deconstruction starts, right? And it's different if it hits earlier in therapy and they come in knowing maybe they have a sex addiction and they've had a faith crisis versus a couple years in, they've got some traction. Now they're working on having more of a stable sense of self and they're doing some reconstruction in the therapy process and then the deconstruction hits. Yeah. And I mean, that is a big difference. Yes. Right. Because we're looking at, you know, early recovery, we're looking at layers of crisis and layers of family crisis and layers of, you know, sexual crisis. We're trying to get sober from maybe two or three different things. And God is not what God was. Mm -hmm. And that is really, really hard for people. And so that requires a lot more parameters on the front end, I think, or different. I shouldn't say a lot more, but different. It requires different parameters than someone who is coming into a space of themselves and realizing like, okay, I've pulled on this thread of self-embodiment and integration, and this part is not integrating. And I, I've got a question, like I have to lean into that. And that does require a different set of parameters and a different set of skills and a different set of questions for the therapist. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I want to be clear here, like when we see this showing up in the therapy rooms at our office, it's not just the sex addict. Like sometimes they're the one holding on to their faith Yeah, and their partner had a faith crisis and started deconstruction. Yeah. So that's the other thing that I think is really important to recognize is it is rare for couples to deconstruct. Like if you're in a, a partnership, it is rare for couples to deconstruct at the same time. And it can feel really lonely for the partner deconstructing, or they can get really, really angry that the, the other partner is not able to show up for them. And you're right. Like it, it's not a respecter of person of time, mm -hmm. right? Because crisis hits us differently. And sometimes I use this example in my office that I am a, like if, if I see my mother is a trauma nurse and I grew up with my mom being a trauma nurse and my mom is kind of the, she has this brilliant capacity to like not, and I mean, this is her trauma response, right? But she has this brilliant capacity of like not questioning or holding emotion while she's in crisis. She can move through a crisis. She can triage people faster than anybody I've ever seen. And she can hold that well. And I think she can do that in spiritual crisis or in like family crisis. Like she, she's really good at holding that crisis space. I, on the other hand, go internal, right? Like when I am processing crisis, I go internal and I question everything inside. And then when I've got something that is a semblance of making sense, then I present it. And so we see that in spiritual deconstruction too, right? Like we will see someone be able to like really move through that crisis and like, okay, we're getting therapy. We're going to get help. We're going to stabilize. We're going to do this. And then we have the person that just kind of sits in it and is like, everything that I've ever known is now on the table. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that either one of them is right or wrong. It's just the different way that we handle trauma. It's the different way that we handle crisis. But if that's not happening, Right. If we're not doing it together in the partnership, it can put a lot of stress on that partnership. And we need to be able to have those communications of how to show up yeah. and how to set boundaries. Because a lot of people who are deconstructing feel like they're doing it alone because they're scared of what their partner will say or they're scared of how it's going to affect their recovery. Right. I've had a lot of sex addiction partners 
or betrayal trauma partners who start deconstructing and they're like, I can't put this on the table because they'll relapse. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's incredible. That's a lot to hold. Yeah. And they're experiencing betrayal in two ways. They're experiencing betrayal in their faith and betrayal in their partnership. And so like, they're not right. Like where's their foundation? We've got to, right. we've got to create some support there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you also talked about, and you've mentioned it a couple of times already, just historically too, we don't have a lot of, when we look back at, you know, church and religion from a history lens, there's also not a lot there for people who deconstruct. Although, I mean, there are examples, you know, you use those examples. Yeah. I mean, again, this is one of those things where we think it's like really bad, really, Uh really bad to question religious authority. And yet every change that has ever happened in religion has happened because someone spiritually deconstructed. Right. Which Um, makes it also not a modern day issue that didn't occur historically. Right. Which I feel like we should all know this at this point. We don't know this, but human beings are cyclical. We go through this works until it doesn't work. And then we have to find something new. And that's when innovation comes in. That's when creativity comes in. I mean, Martin Luther, who created the entire Protestant revolution, didn't mean to, but he did. He did that out of a faith deconstruction process, right? The God that he understood was not the same God that was showing up as the church. And he had questions and he posted those questions and Mm -hmm. right. And he asked those questions and he asked those questions in a very big way and the church couldn't accept that. So a whole movement came out of that. Right. That was a one man's spiritual deconstruction process that he had no other place to put it than on the church doors. Right. And so, yeah, this is not new. Every time we've had a a spiritual awakening or like when you look at the spiritualist movement in the 1800s to the early 1900s, all of that was a spiritual deconstruction process. When you look at where the LDS faith and charismatic faith, they both came out of the same quote unquote spiritual awakening. Those were both spiritual deconstruction processes, right? right? And there's some beauty that comes from that. There's a lot of beauty that comes from spiritual deconstruction. And what happened in those movements is a lot of people were asking the same questions all at once. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're seeing that now in America within millennials and Gen Zers who grew up with the internet, right? You can Google literally anything. Right. And if your faith has not been willing to answer those questions, or have said like, you just don't get to know those questions and Google has an answer that's disruptive. And we're watching millennials and Gen Zers spiritually deconstruct. Like, does this actually fit the world that I live in? Mm -hmm. And for a lot of them, they're finding that it doesn't and they're having to reconstruct into something else. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just hitting those generations. Those generations are the ones leaving the churches as much as possible. But I have boomers in my office who are 70 and deconstructing for the first time and having to deal with the grief and loss of like, what does this mean for me that Mm -hmm. I'm spiritually deconstructing at 70? You know, like this touches kind of everybody, every socioeconomic level. There are people spiritually deconstructing. Right. So, you know, we talk a lot in our office and you brought this up. I wanted to go there next. So Um, you brought this up in your presentation, but we've talked about like you and I have heard Dr. Karn say, I don't know how many times 
but I don't know that all CSATs have heard him say this, right? Where he talks about how spirituality is what gives life meaning and sexuality is the most meaningful parts of ourselves. Now, the first time I heard that, I thought, I, I'm going to have to think about that. Right. Like, I'm not saying that Dr. Carnes is wrong. I'm saying I got to think about that because that has never been presented to me before. Like sexuality is the most meaningful part of myself. And so I've heard him say it multiple times since then. But, you know, it took me, I, I mean, I probably thought on that for months mm -hmm. and was like, oh, I get what he's saying. Mm -hmm. And so you use that. We've talked about that in our staff meetings. We talk about that in our office. Talk about how you presented that as part of your presentation. Yeah. I mean, it is one of those things, like I've heard him say it and I don't know when or where. So like, I, you know, I give him the credit for that. That is his thought baby. But I think that there's a lot of truth in sexuality is the core of our identity, which we're seeing a lot right now in sexual politics, right? Mm -hmm. There's right. And I mean, even in the LGBTQ plus movement, a lot of that is like, I'm trying to share my identity with the world. Like this is how we identify as people and spirituality is a lot of like spirituality is something bigger than ourselves that connects us. Mm -hmm. And so sexuality and spirituality are intertwined and have never been like separate. I have looked, I have tried, I have looked at every known religion that I could find in which sexuality was not part of that, but that's, it's just not possible. It's not possible to find a place where spiritual space and sexual space don't intertwine at some point. And so when you start pulling on the thread of questioning healthy sexuality, of looking at, does this work for me? Does this not work for me? Like, are these rules applicable? Then you're also going to pull on spiritual threads mm -hmm. because they are interlinked and you can only go so far before you hit one or the other. Uh, which I do think is why CSATs are seeing this a lot in their offices, because we don't have a problem talking about sex in very vulnerable ways. And if we can talk about sex in very vulnerable ways, we have to be able to talk about the spiritual piece in very vulnerable ways because they go together and they have always gone together. We like to compartmentalize things and <laughs> right. Like we like to say, this is this one thing. And I often say like, no, everything is connected to everything. Like it's a web. And when you pull on one thing, like it affects the other pieces, the other pieces vibrate. And so when you're layering that, those pieces are very vulnerable and very layered and they affect other people in our lives. Mm -hmm. So of course, like we want to handle that with as much tact and vulnerability as we can, which I don't know that we do well as humans. And I think that that's why it's really important for therapists to understand what this needs to look like. Yeah. I would say too, as you talked about, like with the LGBTQ plus community saying, wait, there's this part of me that maybe hasn't been accepted in the, you know, religious faith that was my origin faith, but it is a part of me and I don't want to deny it anymore. I also think, you know, and I, I work with uh, parents who are trying to make sense of this. Like many of them are wanting to be supportive of their kids, but their kids are saying I'm non-binary and my pronouns change or, and you know, they're saying to me like, help me understand what's happening. Like, I want to be supportive, but I'm not also not getting it. Like last week they were he, him this week, they're they, them next week. They might be she, her, like, I'm just, and one of the things that, you know, 
I've come to understand, I think, is this youngest generation that we have right now is also delaying committing to something. Yes. Which I don't think is bad. Like, because I think, again, we, we like those boxes. We want to put people in those boxes from the time we find out the gender of this fetus growing in us, right? We're starting to apply all of these societal norms around gender. And so I, I just think as this younger generation, you know, Gen Zers are trying to make sense of their world, they're also more reluctant to commit at very young ages to who I am in terms of these deep, entrenched identities. Yeah. And I mean, like we've talked about this in the mental health world for a long time, that labels are often not helpful and we use them. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things you and I had a personal conversation after my presentation around like where, where I've landed. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, that's really hard to define. Like it's right. really hard for me to define because it doesn't have a label anymore. Right. I think how I identify spiritually is way more authentic internally than the label that I used, but it is really hard to describe to other people. Like it, it came with a monologue, which I mean, again, I think people do deserve a monologue, right? When, because again, we maybe used to say, oh, I'm this religion and people would be like, oh, okay. You believe this and this and that, like, we just knew when you used a certain label, all of these other things came into place maybe. Whereas when it's like, where did I land and what do I believe now? Well, that's a whole discussion, right? Because it can't be summed up in a label. Right. And it has required me to be a lot more vulnerable mm -hmm. as a person, right? Cause I don't have a soundbite bite that I can like rely on. I think that you're right. I think that one, I think that labels have been very damaging in a lot of ways. And I think that we like to categorize things. I like, I think as people, we like things to be less messy. But I also, one of the things that I think I'm, I have realized with Gen Zers in my office and kind of in my life is they feel lied to by their religions of origin mm -hmm. and they don't know what to do with that. And so there is a lot of like, I am going to discover for myself because I don't know that you guys know what's actually going on, mm -hmm. which I think sometimes is what young people do, right? That's how we define generations. And in the past, I think for the most part, they go through that in their teen years and maybe their twenties. And then for the most part, they settle into what has been. Yeah. And they find a way to find a community and then become that. Right. Right. And I just, I mean, my kids are, I would say the oldest of the Gen Z, you know, I mean, do we still have some that are being born now? I think most of no. Gen Z has been born. Yeah. But my kids are that oldest part of Gen Z, right? Kind of see the years divided into the first 10 years of the generation and the second, and there's even some differences there, but I don't think they're going to just as adults settle into what has always been. I don't think millennials have done that. And so I definitely don't think Gen Z is going to do that. Yeah. And I do think, right. Cause I am part of the elder millennial generation. I, I think what happened with millennials is we tried, mm -hmm. we were given a plan. We were told, this is your plan. 
And so we went to college, we got the degree, we got all the student loan debt, and then the recession hit and everything that we had known about the world shifted. Mm -hmm. We're also the generation that experienced the first mass school shooting. Mm -hmm. We experienced 9-11 as children and we, you know, we experienced the war in Afghanistan. We experienced the recession in Iran, all of that. Our, and technology in and, a way that nobody and, else had. Right. And we went from local news rate. When I was a kid, we had four channels. Right. Because PBS counted as a channel, but right. We had four channels and now we can stream everything. I can get TV on my phone. Mm-hmm. I didn't even have a phone right. when I was a kid, right? Like it was a landline yes. that we all shared as a family. And now like I have, I mean, I can be in constant contact with the world, the entire world. Right. Whereas, and we talked about this back in our room, you know, like the group of us from our office that, that had gone to this uh, symposium, we were talking more about just, you know, it used to be, what TV was available, mm -hmm. you know, most of Americans had the same options. And so they would watch that, right? The same news anchors and news channels, it was a limited amount, right? Mm -hmm. Where Americans were getting their news and that is just not the case anymore. And we're seeing the, you know, division and we're seeing how wide the sources are for people. Yeah. And I think that there, there can be a lot of damage that comes from that mm -hmm. because I don't know that the human brain was meant to really process what is happening beyond our community, mm -hmm. right? Like we're supposed to be taking care of our own tribe and kind of like doing that in that space. And I don't know that our brain has developed to that point, but there's also this level. And I think this is why spiritual deconstruction is happening so much is what I believe right in my community, what my community teaches isn't true for the Buddhist in China mm -hmm. who's experiencing something very different or like we've started to understand how the movement of history and politics and power has affected religion in Gen Z. And I think that they're starting to see that like when you layer how colonial imperialism and Christianity grew at the same rate, you start to question, what did we lose? What did we lose in human history? Mm -hmm. And I hear that from Gen Zers. And I, yes. I know that a lot of people are like their kids and they're just angsty and whatever, but like they're asking hard questions. They're asking questions that I didn't ask until my thirties. Yes. Yes. And I think that that's because the information is out there and some of it, like some of it I think is really damaging, but I also think a question is a question mm -hmm. and we may not always come to the right conclusions, but like we should have the right to ask the questions. Right. And I will say, I mean, as a mom who grew up with kind of a set answer to choose from, right? With my girls, I quickly realized, oh, those answers are not satisfying to them. Like they know the same set of answers that I do because they got them at church and they're asking for more, right? right? And so as a parent, I would try to have a discussion about it and sometimes just say, I don't know right? Here's what I know. Here's what I think. What do you, like, it was a discussion, right? And I mean, my kids got to a point, I would say they, they deconstructed before me and my husband did in many ways. And they've talked about since, like, I mean, again, I had four girls, right? We had four girls and they're saying like, what we as females got, the messaging we got at church 
was very different than what we got at home. Mm -hmm. Church was very limiting to us. Home was very broad. And why wouldn't we choose the messages we got at home? Yeah. I mean, and I mean, I have a, a daughter as well, and she's much younger than yours, right? Mm -hmm. And and I've kind of used that as a template for my daughter because I don't want her to ever feel like she may feel like she is restricted because of her gender. I don't want it to come from me and her dad. Right. And I want her to know that she has people in her corner that are going to hold that space. And I mean, I think that this is another place where sexuality and spirituality line up for most of us. We have gendered rules in our religions of origin mm -hmm. and I'm not saying and gendered that, roles and gendered roles. And I'm not saying that that is necessarily bad, right? If we have the right to choose it, I have a quote on my wall from the stormlight archives that is, you know, women's power isn't in the role that they choose. It's in their freedom to choose it. And mm -hmm. I, I do believe that, right? Mm -hmm. Like I do believe that there is a lot more, there is as much power at um, being a homemaker or a stay at home mom as there is being in the workplace or holding both or owning your own company or running in politics or whatever that is, mm -hmm. as long as it is your choice and not a choice that was put on you. Right. And I'm experiencing a lot of females specifically deconstructing because the role they're being given within their faiths of origin, they can't live in this world and hold those roles. Right. And I mean, when you give people an impossible decision, they, they're going to start asking questions. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think we see with a lot of our clients, even though many of the men we work with, we might say they were given the better roles or the better messages. I don't know if I believe well, that. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> they're finding that they don't believe that. Mm -hmm. And that the messaging and the roles that they were given to choose from actually aren't helping them either. Like, right. I, I just think patriarchy does a number on everybody. On everybody. Everybody. Right. I mean, we got here a keynote speaker, which I, I totally fangirl over. <laughs> um, I, like it's been a whole thing, but Emily Nagoski, who wrote come as you are was one of our keynotes. And one of the things that she said, and I like you and I have used this analogy in sexual recovery for a long time is mm -hmm. this idea of a box or a garden. And like, we're given that space at birth. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people put a lot of stuff in that. And then we were handed that garden at like 18 and we're told, okay, tend the garden. Right. And this is your garden. And sometimes we just get trash in that garden, mm -hmm. right? Like sometimes we get toxic soil. Sometimes we get bad plants, sometimes whatever that is. And sexually, spiritually, just as a holistic person, I think that one of the responsible things that we have to do as mature, emotional adults is go through that garden, uh -huh. plant by plant, soil by soil, and figure out, does this work for me? Is this what I even want? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is scary. And I also, Richard Rohr says something in Falling Upward that I thought was really, really powerful. He says, you know, like religion gets people like, it keeps them in, in a spiritual childhood where we're constantly relying right. on a parent. And I am, I'm paraphrasing. This is actually through like several different chapters. So I'm really summarizing his like idea on this, but part of spiritual deconstruction 
is us going on that walkabout process, going on that rite of passage process to then become an adult child mm-hmm. of a parent so that we are now making decisions and we are taking responsibility right. of our life and we're recognizing mm-hmm. why the rules were there and if they apply to us or not. Right. Right. Like I, I have a young child. She is required to hold my hand when we are in a parking lot or when we cross the street. At 25, she is not going to be required (laughs) to hold my hand in a parking lot when we're crossing the street. But the principle still applies. Mm -hmm. I want her watching for cars. I want her paying attention to traffic. That's the principle of the rule. But your expectation is also that she will get to that place where she can do that. Yes. And you don't always have to be doing it for her or her relying on you. Like, mom, is it safe? Are there cars? Like, she's going to be able to practice that herself. Right. And I mean, it's a joke in our clinic that Rachel does all therapy, all of life on pirate rules. Yes. They're guidelines, right? Like there's a principle, there's a reason that we do this. Mm -hmm. And what if the principle stands, but the rule is actually not holding to them. Mm -hmm. And so maybe we need a different rule. Maybe we don't need a rule around that at all. Maybe it just becomes intuitive. Well, and I felt like as a parent, there was a distinct time period where you know, we had been operating on rules and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, and you need to know that some rules should not be in place and breaking the rule is actually better. It's healthier to break this rule. Some rules you outgrow, mm-hmm. some rules you actually, they shouldn't be rules. You, you need to define that yourself. And, you know, just as a parent, and I would say too, as a therapist parent, mm-hmm. Like that was a process we went through where it was like, oh, wait, yeah, not all rules are just good rules. And you need to be engaged with what is the rule? How do I feel? What are my values? Right. And you have to navigate. And I think that this is one of those spaces, right? Like as mature adults, mature emotional adults, we have to learn how to navigate what rules are okay to break and what rules are not, right? Like, I get super frustrated by entitled drivers Mm -hmm. who think that none of the rules apply to them. Right. And that's because it's not safe. And, you know, we talk about healthy sexuality rules as safe, sane, and consensual. It has to be safe, sane, and consensual for all parties. And Mm -hmm. I think that is true for spiritual deconstruction. I think that's true for sexual deconstruction, right? Like one of the things that, and I think that this is part of those misnomers in spiritual deconstruction that comes up is a lot of times we are grieving and we get really angry, but we hurt other people with our anger and our grief. Yes. Right. We get angry in a way that is damaging, that is belittling, that is dehumanizing to other people who are not where we are at. Mm -hmm. And that's not okay. Right. And anger, I find is a process in the deconstruction. Absolutely. And like we say with our clients, there's a whole lot of anger you can express and you should express in our therapy sessions, whether it's around deconstruction or whatever, right? And when anger starts to, when you start to project that anger out in damaging ways, Mm -hmm. that's not appropriate. Right. I mean, we talked about Rachel Love's language and in my office, there's no like research on this. This is totally Rachel's definition of how I differentiate anger and rage, but anger is the emotion that we feel, Mm -hmm. right? Anger happens in our bodies. 
Anger happens with our bodies. Anger gives us a lot of information. Rage is when we take that anger and we try to control others with it. Mm-hmm. Or like I've often said, we can act on our anger. Mm-hmm. Maybe our anger is alerting us to the fact that a boundary is needed yes. or whatever, right? So I can act on my anger. My anger in that way serves as a clue mm-hmm. and it's alerting me to something. But acting out my anger is rage. Right. I was talking to my mom this morning about something. And one of the things that we were talking about is I I do believe that there is an emotional healing process that comes in grief that fits a physical process of healing. And for me, anger is the emotion that cauterizes the wound and stops the bleeding. Mm -hmm. Too much, you're damaging tissue. Mm -hmm. Too little, you're bleeding out. Right. But you need it because you need to stop the bleeding and you need to be able to move to the next day of healing. Right. And so you need it just like we need to cauterize wounds. Like there's a reason that works and too much is damaging right. to us as mm-hmm. much as the other people around us. Right. And I think that our bodies know what too much is if we listen to our bodies, mm-hmm. but that's a lot of internal work that we have to get to. Yes. So let's spend the last few minutes of this podcast. I want to talk about first, if you're a client listening to this, how do you test the waters? If this is coming up for you, how do you test the waters as to whether or not it's safe to bring this up in therapy with this particular therapist, or if I need to find a new therapist? And then let's spend a few minutes just talking about the reconstruction process. Yeah. I think for a lot of clients, some of the first questions they ask are like, are you in a faith? And I don't know that that's really helpful for clients. I do think that that is like one of the first questions that gets asked. And sometimes that you already know that, you know, that your therapist is in a faith of some kind, but I think one of the better questions to ask, I think with all things we have to ask with some like vulnerability and honesty, like, how are you going to handle this? Right. Because I don't have anywhere else to go. And if this is not something that you feel like you can handle, like I need to know that upfront. Because as a client, you cannot compartmentalize and work with this therapist on something else and keep your deconstruction separate. Right. No, it's all going to spill out. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like spaghetti. It's all, <laughs> it's all going to get real messy real fast. But I think that that's a, a good question to ask yeah. your therapist. Asking about their experience with deconstruction. Mm-hmm. Right. I get asked in my presentation how much I self-disclose. Like sometimes I do self-disclose my own. Mm-hmm. deconstruction. Sometimes I don't like, I think that that depends on the safety for the client and the safety, right. For this, like where we're at, but I, I think it can be helpful. Like, what is your experience with this? Have you, like, do you have a knowledge base of this? Right. I mean, I would hope if you're coming into a therapist for a first time, if you don't have a relationship, I think one of the questions that you need to ask is what is your goal for me in my spiritual deconstruction process? Mm-hmm. Because you as a client are probably not going to have a lot of goals, right? Because you're questioning. Mm-hmm. And if your therapist has a goal that you are not on board with or don't know what that is, that can feel very manipulative in the process. And so you, we just want to be upfront about that. And what would be some good answers from a therapist? Uh, from a therapist, right? Like this is your journey. You have full autonomy in this. My job is to support you. And I may ask some questions. And if that is right, if those questions feel like they're too early or too soon, we can table them. But my job is really to support you. And I have no vested interest right. in where you land as long as you land integrated. Right. As long as you land as a whole person and we're not, you know, 
and we're reconstructing into something mm -hmm. that feels good for you as the client, then that I've done my job. Right. I, I've supported you right. through that. I mean, I think again, depending on how the therapist has processed this, has worked with this, you can share a little bit of your story. If you feel like that's safe, don't do it just to do it. Mm -hmm. um, right? right. Like I think that that's all self-disclosure. Don't do it if it's not beneficial to the client. And I think that there's a level of trust, right? Like you're building trust with this client and the client in responding to that question of like, what faith are you in or have you spiritually deconstructed? Like, I think one of the better questions is, I understand that there's not a lot of trust built with people talking about this subject. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that question by question, one-on-one, -on -one, that this is a safe space for you. Right. Which is ultimately what the therapist's job is. Everything that a therapist can do with clients has to be done in an environment of safety and trust. Yes. And really, right, like if you're a therapist, don't project your own stuff onto your clients. Right. I feel like that. That's in ethics, but uh -huh. and this was an ethical presentation, right? Right. But also for the client, like this can be really scary. And I understand you don't, you can't often go to religious leaders. You can't often go to your partners first. You can't often go to your 12 step groups first because all of that is being defined for you. Mm -hmm. And hopefully you can enter into a space with your therapist that is really vulnerable and just saying like, I have nowhere else to go with this. And I need to know if you can hold this or not. Right. And so then let's talk just briefly. I mean, we've kind of talked about it throughout, but the reconstruction process. Yeah. So I don't believe in just deconstructing into nothing, right? right. Like I, I mean, even or staying with, this is everything I don't believe. Yes. I mean, and I talked about that a little bit in my presentation that when people identify as ex evangelical or ex Christian or ex Jewish or whatever that X, right. It's like a divorce. I am an ex but I'm still attached to you. I'm still having a relationship with you. I'm still in some ways defining who I am in relationship to this. Right. And I think like that is a sign to me that we are, we have not fully deconstructed mm -hmm. and we have not reconstructed into something else or the same thing, but different. Reconstructing is the rebuilding process and is the fun part of deconstruction. Right. Because then you get to like actually decide, like you actually get to reap the benefits of the things that you've left in the garden, the things that you've planted in the garden, right? It's that growth space. It's, it's not the cleaning out space. It's not the clearing space. It's that growth space. It's that finding something new that's working for you. And there are a lot of infinite ways that you can do this mm -hmm. and infinite labels or things that you can seek or spiritual practices that you can do that don't have to land in anybody else's garden. And that reconstruction process is all about you and it's all about autonomy and it's all about consent. And it's a really, really sweet spot in therapy. Mm -hmm. It's a really, really sweet spot in spiritual growth and practice because it's all about the, like, this is who I am. This is what I want. This is what I believe. And it feels integrate. Like we literally start to stitch ourselves together mm -hmm. with that. And so there is an unraveling, there is a breaking apart, there is a deconstruct, there is a burning down. Right. But, and I think in, you know, we talk with our clients when they're struggling with addiction or like so much of therapy, I feel like is allowing clients to make meaning of what has happened to them. Yes. And then start to define themselves or express the authentic self once they have made meaning. Yeah. And. And again, that is an exciting place to get to, right? And and we talked about too how therapy 
itself is a deconstruction process, right? Yes. We're deconstructing beliefs we needed to have about our family of origin. We are deconstructing beliefs about our experiences. We're deconstructing a lot with clients. So it isn't surprising if the spirituality starts to deconstruct as well, but we're doing that in an effort to reconstruct. And again, as therapists, we don't know exactly what that looks like, mm -hmm. but we're giving permission for that authentic self to stand up and start defining some things. Yeah. And I mean, really like that's the best part of life, mm -hmm. right? That finding that where we're not just responding against something, but we're actually responding to something in our soul, in our bodies, mm -hmm. we're creating space and it gets really nuanced. And sometimes like there's a, I mean, I told people in my presentation, both me and my husband deconstructed and we, we landed our reconstruction looked very different, but because we were willing to talk about that and because we're still willing to talk about that, we've got two beautiful structures mm -hmm. that we can mm -hmm. now facilitate conversation in. Right. And that's, that is just, that's just a really cool place to be. Yes. I guess my, my thing is like, if you're listening to this and you are spiritually deconstructing, there is something on the other side of the deconstruction. There is something on the other side of burning it down. Don't stop at the burning. Right. Right. Let that fuel, let that create a space for you to build or grow something that is yours and beautiful and powerful mm -hmm. because it's neat. It's right. real neat right. when we do it. Yeah. And I think, again, sometimes we're having to let go of sameness. Yeah. You know, sometimes the, the umbrella under which we got married was that sameness. We came from the same faith. We came from the same religious belief, something like that. And that's not going to be the landing place. Right. Because human beings are incredibly complex. And so the, the idea that we're going to be same is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. And the good news is I think, I think sameness isn't necessarily connection because it's more of a vacuum, right? Yeah. And, and it's a narcissistic connection, not narcissistic, you know, the actual diagnosis, but it's that I like you because you think just like me, because you reflect to me what I want. Yes. To see. Yeah. And you reflect to me, me. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, but I think when we come to that place and it is an individual place and there's some common ground that people cover, but you know, again, that authentic self is going to be a little bit different. The connection that comes then when we share and maybe we're in different places, which I, I just think two human beings are going to be in some different places all the time with some common ground, right? We still might love each other and we still might have these, some similar values, how we go about expressing that is different, but that really leads to some deep, intimate connection. Right. And even like talking about values, right? Like one of the things that I really like to do with clients is who gave you those values? Mm -hmm. Do those values actually work in your relationship? Is it okay for you to hold different values in a way that is like complementary to the relationship, right? Like if one of us really values together time and one of us really values like individualization, and that's kind of where we land in this reconstruction process, we can work with that, right? There's some beautiful space where you can be like, okay, we're spending some together time, but we're talking about each other as individuals versus just like, we're going bowling because we've always gone bowling on Thursday nights. Mm -hmm. It becomes this space of, I want to know you as a person, right? The person in front of me, 
is this deep pool of complexity and diversity. And I want to know that. Yeah. And that is, like I said, like that is the place we hope to get to. It is a really, really cool place in reconstruction. And I do think that we're doing that on layers in therapy. Yeah. And right, that's the goal. Like that's the part we get excited about as therapists. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I know you've got a bounce, so we could probably talk about this for Forever. hours. <laughs> um, but we're gonna end it there. If you as a listener, whether you're a therapist or a non-therapist, and you have some questions or you'd like to you know, hear a little bit more. There was something that you were like, no, say a little bit more. I'm, I'm not quite grasping that. Feel free to contact me. You know, like I said, Rachel and I are going to be uh, recording on a monthly basis. So we can also go back and have conversations about that your question or what you wanted us to discuss more. But thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. I want to remind you at the end of this episode that your story matters. There's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and education and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I'm not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.